Welcome to Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Uh, before I introduce you to today's topic and guests, I just want to make a quick technical note. Uh, for various reasons, today's show will be a bit more rudimentary production-wise than usual, but we'll be back to the normal format next month. And of course, as to what really matters, we've got a really exciting show for you today. Uh, our topic today is the truth about alternative energy. We hear all the time about the supposedly exciting promise of alternative energy, and this um, often goes under many different names, such as green energy, clean energy, renewable energy. And alternative energy, roughly speaking, refers to sources of energy that are not successful on the market now, but that proponents claim will be superior to market sources of energy if only the government gets involved on their behalf. Uh, for example, Al Gore in 2008 gave a, a very limited speech in which he actually argued for the, the abolition of all CO2-emitting electricity and much of CO2-emitting transportation fuel by 2018. And as part of this justification, he said that he knows of, quote, renewable sources that can give us the equivalent of $1 per gallon gasoline, unquote. And, of course, we're paying a lot more than $1 per gallon gasoline, so if that were actually true, that would be pretty impressive. And also, surely you've heard of all the excitement about a green economy, green jobs, as well as calls for the government to subsidize or mandate everything from electric cars to rooftop solar panels to wind turbines, natural gas cars. And all of this is all premised that the government or various policy intellectuals have superior alternatives to what the market, what individuals on the market, their own devices, would produce. Now, on past shows, we've at some of these so-called alternative energies on a technical level understanding why it's so hard for, say, solar panels to be affordable and reliable as a major source of energy. We've talked about things like the fact that they're very dilute sources of energy, that they, uh, the energy from them comes intermittently, and therefore it's very hard to harness in a reliable economic way. But today we're going to take a slightly different angle, although I'm sure this angle will come as well. We're going to look at some of the history of how government-led alternative energy works out in practice. How does it actually work when the government promotes wind turbines uh, or electric cars? Because often we'll hear, we'll hear all of these grand promises and see these ribbon-cutting ceremonies and hear these amazing things that are supposedly going to happen in the future. But in the past, when the government has actually done this, how, is it, how has it really worked out? This isn't a history that most people are familiar with. And to talk about this issue, we are joined by Tom Tanton, a man who knows as much about the reality of alternative energy as anyone because he worked three decades at the California Energy Commission, which has spearheaded numerous, numerous alternative energy programs over the decades, including programs for just about every quote-unquote new technology we hear about today. Tom, welcome to Power Hour. Well, I'm honored to be with you this morning, Alex. Well, it's 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 uh it's great to have you. Now, uh I mentioned your background a little bit, but could you elaborate on it because I think it is it is a unique background that we're not often exposed to in the policy debate. Well, uh first of all, my degree is in chemistry with a specialty in spectroscopy. But my career has been focused primarily on economic development and public policy as it relates to energy. As you mentioned, I spent almost three decades at the California Energy Commission, leaving there as a principal policy advisor, uh, moving then to the Electric Power Research Institute, more commonly referred to as EPRI, uh, where I was manager of, of uh, renewables and hydroelectric programs 
and my focus was on integrating new technologies with markets. Uh, I left there in 2003 and went to work for uh, Rob Bradley's Institute for Energy Research and have been an independent consultant uh, ever since. And what I've learned over time is that uh, government has a hard time accommodating learning experiences. In, in other words, it continues to um, do things that they should really know better than to do because their own experience has taught them the fallacy of their approach. So I want to I want to um, talk about that more the what their approach is and what the experiences have been and I think one way to do it and the way I'll suggest that we do now is to actually look at a couple of programs that the government has especially the California government has been involved in over the years since the California government is, is a leader if you want to call it that in alternative energy and then I think some uh, common denominators will be involved so I'm going to ask you about a couple technologies and for each one there are going to be two basic questions which are what was the sales pitch? That's one. So how was this promoted? What was it supposed to accomplish? What were we told it would accomplish? And then what was the reality? How does that sound? That sounds fine, Alex. Okay, so how about um, leading alternative energy wind turbines? How long has California been involved in promoting wind, and how did this come about and, and play out? Well, it, California has been encouraging wind turbine development since – the late 1970s, just after the California Energy Commission was formed and just after the first oil embargo. It was originally sold as a alternative to fossil fuel-generated uh, electricity. Uh, the reality, and, and the concept was, if we mandate them and encourage them and provide incentives and provide subsidies, Mass production will improve the technology and improve the cost such that um, they'll, be, they'll become com cost competitive. When in fact what happened was they were, they were oversold uh, initially and the price went up because demand outpaced supply. Uh, we encountered a lot of uh, technical issues with the impact of those wind turbines on the grid as well as impacts on uh, endangered species and avian mortality. And it just didn't work out. So rather than learning from that experience, uh, what the government decided to do was to double down and encourage more and provide greater incentives and uh, led to things like the Renewable Portfolio Standard where a certain percentage would, of electricity would have to come from alternative sources, the cheapest of which was uh, wind turbines. But because of the uh, intermittency, uh, you know, the wind is up and the wind is down, it caused other technical issues and, in fact, led to an increase in fossil fuel consumption that we've seen in not only California but uh, in other states because of the uh, inefficiencies imposed on power plants that are required to balance the uh, variable output of wind turbines. Uh, can you? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm familiar with this last point, but can you just elaborate a little bit? I mean, I think I've heard you describe it before as like stop and go traffic, and why it why because it, it seems like well, you're getting a certain amount of I mean, leaving aside the issue of whether it's legitimate for the government to uh, try to limit CO2 emissions, assuming that's that's the goal. Why is it that 
it seems like you're producing all of this energy from wind, so how, how can it be that the CO2 emissions increase? Well, you have to keep in mind that electricity is somewhat unique in that it uh, has to be balanced very precisely on a minute-to-minute basis and balanced between the supply of electricity and the demand and consumption of electricity. Uh, And that all has to be done in uh, perfect harmony. What happens when the wind is up and the wind is down, other power plants on the grid have to mirror that uh, that behavior. They have to uh, go down when the wind is up and they have to go up when the wind is down. And there's a phenomenon known as ramping. So a, a power plant that is um, a, 100 megawatts may have to operate down to 70 and back up to 85 and back to 100 and whatnot. And your analogy of a car in stop-and-go traffic is is precisely the situation. Those power plants that are required to ramp up and down in response to the wind end up losing efficiency. They're designed and operated to operate at um, near maximum load. When they're operating uh, less than that and constantly going up and down and up and down, they lose efficiency. And after a point, that efficiency loss ends up costing them more fuel consumption, and it's just like if your car is in stop-and-go traffic, you may be traveling fewer miles, but you're consuming more gas than if you're, say, on the freeway. Got it. So let's now, let's go to now, the, the – e- oh, go ahead. I think, it's, I think it's important to point out that originally there was – wind turbines were not being encouraged by government as a solution to CO2 emissions. They were originally intended to uh, reduce fossil fuel consumption and related uh, pollution of uh, nitrous oxides and particulate matter. And when that uh, sort of diminished in importance, uh, then the the claim was, well, they, they help us with greenhouse gas emissions. But the same problem exists. They don't. So th- this was actually a problem that was that was known or discovered way earlier before global warming was even the issue on the table. When it was actually much more plausible things like particulate matter that that, in my understanding, do have a real uh, do, do have real correlations with human health. Uh, yes, that's correct. So, um, so when. As far as the economics go, though, because I, I imagine that at the beginning of this, and certainly now we'll hear that. I've seen all kinds of headlines from past decades that say solar or wind is going to be viable in the next five years, and it's, it's always this moving target. What, 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 was the, what, was, what were the economic claims made at the outset of these wind initiatives? Well, at the outset, it was uh, twofold. One is we need to make the turbines bigger. And we went from uh, basically uh, 737-type wingspans to 747-type wingspans uh, for the wind turbines themselves. And that mass production would uh, drive, the, drive the cost down. But it's important to keep in mind that there's a difference between cost and price. The cost of the turbines has improved somewhat, but the price has not. In fact, the price has gone upwards 
because of this um, increased demand uh, that has outpaced supply, driven in large measure by the renewable portfolio standards and the federal production tax credit. At the same time, those two programs have reduced technological innovation because the manufacturers uh, can sell as many as they can using the old technology. There's no, there's no impetus to improve technology. Can you explain both of those? Because uh, I think those are two major pieces of legislation that are important and understood, the tax credit and then the renewable portfolio standard. Yeah, the, the renewable portfolio standard is uh, mandates at, in various states, and I think there's currently 30 states that have renewable portfolio standards. They're also referred to as renewable electricity standards in some locations. And what that requires is a growing percentage of electricity supplied to the grid to come from various renewable sources, wind, solar, geothermal, biomass, et cetera. What's interesting is that the various states that have such programs, the one thing standard about the state programs is there's no standard. What qualifies as a renewable in one state is different than what qualifies as a renewable in another state. But, it, but it's an effective tax on the consumer because those renewables invariably cost more than market price electricity. The production tax credit is a federal program that provides essentially a two cent per kilowatt uh, tax credit to developers of uh, renewable energy. So there's, there's a combination of both federal and state programs that uh, are pushing uh, renewable development uh, throughout the country. So is it safe to say that, that this makes the energy picture look radically different than it would without these incentives? I, I think it's considerably um, different than it would be without the incentives. And, and part of what's going on is all of all of the renewable encouragement is overlaid uh, by the the potential technological choices that uh, various consumers can make for distributed generation, or also referred to as self-generation, where if I own a factory, I can buy a small um, turbine or reciprocating engine and provide my own electricity at less cost than if I buy it from the utility. And some states include self-generation. If you use solar panels on your factory, uh, they include that in the renewable electricity standard. Others don't. So with all of these you mentioned, you mentioned just with the wind experience that there are certain lessons that the government should learn but didn't. What, what are those lessons? Well, I think the first lesson, and this is this is more uh, broadly speaking, when they implement a program, they take a deterministic view that this is going to be the right thing to do, and then later they find out it wasn't the right thing to do, so they'll they'll shift gears. Rather than taking the real lesson from the from the uh, failure of using a probabilistic Let's, let's start a, uh, a program 
start small, uh, have contingencies in the future for uh, changes, and have those contingencies uh, based on things that people learn going forward. Rather than massive swings in the program, at the very least have, have modest changes built in so you know what you're going to do. That I mean that that what you're describing there is sounds exactly how a how a real market works in the sense of you know you invest in a certain technology you learn a lot along the way uh, you have certain plans and you're continually adapting them and then certain people succeed and certain people fail and the market as a whole learns from it it it, it seems like with the government it's almost inherent that it wouldn't do this because the whole premise of it getting involved in energy is not that it has some tiny incremental contribution, but that the very nature of the market is flawed in a way that requires the government to radically change things based on its superior wisdom. So it doesn't seem like it would be likely to learn this lesson because the lesson would really be get out of the way. Well, I think there's there's some role for government. You know, I, I don't think it's necessarily uh, fair to say they shouldn't be involved at all. But uh, there's, there's two factors that are going on. One is uh, the government confuses public benefits with the economic term public good, and they they assume, almost as a as a matter of faith, that the free market will not sufficiently invest in things for the public good. That's one fallacy. The other fallacy is sort of a Hayekian uh, problem that they have is that they they know everything, even though you know every time they turn around they learn something new. They assume at that point in time that they know everything. Yeah, so that that's that that's definitely um, I think part of the part of the arrogance and part of the conceit uh, in bringing about this this kind of thing. What uh, I'm curious, what do you? So you mentioned the issue of I think you call, do you call it the public good or the public interest? What what do you? What do you regard as the legitimate sense of that that the government needs to be concerned with? Because as, as I as I understand it, there's the issue of you know individuals deciding what's the best form of energy for them, and then there's the issue of the, whatever role the government has in terms of you know preventing theft, fraud, and, and then um, certain public health hazards. But beyond that, is there some is there some public interest that you are talking about? No, I think I think the public good of of uh, Protecting public health uh, is one area where there is a legitimate role, but that's not to say that the government is under is fulfilling that role correctly. There's a there's a fundamental distinction between doing the right thing, i.e., protecting public health, and doing the thing right. And I'll give you an example, Alex. Uh, currently in California, we have Assembly Bill 32 also referred to as the Global Warming Solutions Act. And the Air Resources Board is adopting bunches of regulations to reduce California's greenhouse gas emissions. Putting aside for the time being whether that's the right thing to do, because it is the law, uh, they're going about it in t entirely backwards. They have a cap-and-trade program uh, that will begin next January 2012, that, in effect, will increase global emissions of greenhouse gases through a phenomenon known as leakage. 
because of the regulations and the increased cost to California manufacturing and agriculture, California will begin increasing the levels of imports from other states and other countries. Those other states and other countries are more carbon intensive per dollar of GDP than are California than is California. So by pushing our market to greater levels of imports of widgets and lettuce, uh, we're actually causing an increase in global emissions. So we're doing the thing wrong. Well, let me let me partially challenge that. I mean, it, because it seems like there's a question of what is the thing, and and whether you're. T I think we in alternative energy there are two categories of justification that I see. It's usually either this is going to be economically superior and or there's some environmental uh, benefit. But in both cases, a huge amount of what's going on, it's not as if the government has the capacity or even the incentive to sort of scientifically calculate what's really, go what's really a path to, say, reduce CO2 emissions, if that was a legitimate thing. What it has an incentive to do and what it does do is it just panders to the public in terms of acting like we're doing something and assuaging the public's and by the same token um, in a market I know a little bit better oil you know Obama talks about well we're going to decrease imports of oil by the same amount that Saudi Arabia sends us as if that's going to change the economic picture for Saudi Arabia at all which it won't because oil is a global market no matter who we buy from it increases global demand and thus Saudi Arabia's revenues so you it seems like the it doesn't seem right to think of the goal of the government as really solving these problems. It seems to right to think of it as they're they're I mean they're they're uh, they're pandering, or, or at least to expect that they're going to do that. Well, I, I agree with you completely. I was just trying to draw a distinction, and I would argue a, a bit that they're pandering to the public. They're pandering to a. a a, a small subset of the public, i.e., those rent seekers that are uh, trying to capture market that they can't capture otherwise. Uh, how, how do you mean? Well, for, first of all, can you define the term rent seeker because it's kind of an in term? Okay, a, a rent seeker is a company, and I'll, I'll use the exa example of um, General Electric, who uses uh, governmental policies to either exclude their competitors from the market or to give themselves favor, uh, favoritism uh, treatment. Okay, so, um, sorry, go on with your point about, about rent seekers. Well, what rent seekers do is um, they, they are the recipients of uh, a variety of types of uh, government favoritism, tax credits, uh, targeted tax credits uh, or mandates uh, in various things that give them a anti-competitive leg up. And that's who the, uh, the politicians and the bureaucrats cater to more so than the public at large because invariably it, uh, that rent-seeking behavior and the favoritism by government leads to two things. One is at least to higher prices, and two, at least to shortages. 
neither of which are in the, quote, public interest. Yeah, but so rent seekers seem like like one of the audiences, but it also seems as if there. I mean, there's, for instance, the the public has been, has been very much geared toward the whole green movement, and being green and doing green things is certainly a kind of thing that's that's politically incentivized. But the government, for instance, in California, we have this renewable portfolio standard, which it's supposed to go up to, is it 33 percent by 2020? Is that the right number? That's correct. Well, that's not so, the right number. That's the, that's the accurate number. It's not yeah. right about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was about to say. I mean, this is just just to we mentioned before the issue of of stop and go traffic. Um, how these renewables are the equivalent of that because they deliver intermittent en- energy. There's an issue of how that affects CO2 emissions, but the real issue is you're putting an enormous amount of inherently unreliable energy on a network which can only handle. Uh, small amounts of it. So, th- I mean, this is something that is really a- a- an economic disaster waiting to happen. And yet, the alleged benefit of all of this, the reduction in climate change and or in potential climate change, there's no even pl- there's no plausible mechanism by which one leads to the other. There's no no one has discussed any mechanism whatsoever by which this is actually helping to achieve anything whatsoever. It's just well, at least we're doing something. So it's it's well, all just we're 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 not feeling guilty. Yeah, and 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 that, and that goes to the uh, public relations aspect of what the rent seekers get the bureaucrats to do. Um, you often hear that you know the United States has no energy policy. Well, that's not true. We have an energy policy. Rely primarily on the free market. Uh, but the the bureaucrats and the and the politicos don't realize that the do nothing alternative is an alternative is an alternative and it is doing something it's relying on on the status quo um, but they they can't they can't write a campaign slogan based on reliance on the status quo so they have to do something so they can write a campaign slogan. And then it gets wrapped well, up in all the in all the political spin and stuff that you know, look what we're doing, you know, we're doing our best and well sometimes uh they can't recognize that getting out of the way is the best thing to do. Even Lance Armstrong knows that when he's going up a hill, if he's holding the rest of his team back, He's got to get out of the way. Yeah, I mean that's that's true. I, I think it's very terrible to compare the government of California <laughs> to Lance Armstrong uh, in an analogy. But I, I do agree that there is this. There, I mean, I've seen this all over and over where people talk about doing something, and their conception of doing something is the government forcing people to do things against their will. Whereas, if we look at history and even our own lives. Doing something means individuals taking initiative, having ideas, investing their own money, um, and taking responsibility for the results. So the reason we have throughout history the best economy is is we we really do something because we have – in terms of whether that's palatable for a platform, I think that's – that relates to just the the state of the culture and the state of of a philosophy – 
of the culture because there were certainly times at which, you know, with our founding fathers, certainly freedom was a good rallying cry and an effective one. Yeah, and I think it's it's a little more uh, pernicious than that as well, Alex, um, throughout the various programs. You mentioned that we became a, a pretty strong and the world's leading economy because of freedom and, and all those other things you mentioned, and you're absolutely correct. And the way in which we got wealthy is by constantly improving productivity, the amount of uh, production per hour of labor, the amount of production per dollar of invested capital. All those factors of production have constantly improved. Many, if not most, of the government programs today, like the renewables encouragement, are actually taking us backwards. They're reducing productivity. And by reducing productivity, we reduce our creation of wealth because we end up spending our seed capital on um, on silly things. Let's talk about ethanol a little bit, because ethanol is something that we're still it, – it's morphed a bunch over the years, which I think is, is revealing. But how long has, has California been involved with ethanol? And, again, how is, this, how is this sold to the public, and then what actually happened? Well, it was – let's see, ethanol would have started in California in the late 80s uh, after the um, – failure of the methanol program. Originally, uh, the alternative fuel for transportation was supposed to be methanol, uh, and then they realized all the methanol comes from uh, a somewhat inefficient process of reforming natural gas. Uh, well, that doesn't get us off natural gas, uh, and, and we lose part of the natural gas in the process. Uh, so then they went to say, well, let's, let's make ethanol out of uh, sugar-based crops like corn, and that's going to get us off of imported oil and the uh, nasty folks from the Middle East and like that, not recognizing that most of our petroleum actually comes from Canada and Mexico, two of our neighbors who are actually kind of friendly to us. Uh, but it was sold as a um, way to get off petroleum, or at least off imported petroleum. And over the years, it sort of morphed, just like renewable uh, electricity, into a way in which we can reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And in the early days of the uh, implementation by the Air Resources Board of uh, Assembly Bill 32, there was a, a, a particular set of regulations called the Low Carbon Fuel Standards. And at the time, ethanol was believed by the bureaucrats and, and the rent seekers as the hero. You know, we can put ethanol and we can mix it in our gasoline and reduce our carbon content of the gasoline uh, ultimately by 10% by, uh, I think the year was 2015. And then, the, you know, then they, they came to learn that ethanol actually on a life cycle basis increases greenhouse gas emissions because of the tractors used to grow the corn and, you know, the processing of the, of the corn into ethanol and all these other factors, it actually increased uh, greenhouse gas emissions. 
because 25% of the corn crop was going to ethanol. So what, what programs like that do is it, uh, it homogenizes the good actors with the bad actors. Some ethanol production actually reduces greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, other ethanol production increases. So the, the problem with a mandate is it's sort of a one-size-fits-all, and it homogenizes the bad actors with the good actors, removing the incentive to be a good actor, since you get treated the same if you're a bad actor. So now in the low-carbon fuel standard, ethanol is a zero. It's, not, it's no longer the hero. It went from a zero, I mean, from a hero to a zero, based upon some early studies by uh, Dave Pimental at Cornell University and some others that showed on a life cycle basis, ethanol does not reduce greenhouse gas emissions, nor does it expand energy supplies, because it takes as much, if not more, energy to produce it than you have when you've got it. So I like that. I like that um, hero to zero characterization because I've, I've seen that even over the past couple of years, particularly with corn ethanol play out. Now, of course, now they're talking about cellulosic ethanol, and that's going to solve uh, that's going to solve other problems. Well, let me ask you about that. What do you what do you think about that current push for cellulosic ethanol? I think cellulosic ethanol is a good technology that uh, needs time to mature. Um, there are likely some unintended consequences of a push towards cellulosic ethanol, not least of which are the genetically modified bacteria and organisms that convert the, the, the cellulose into uh, various sugars for fermentation. Uh, you know, the same environmental folks that, that are pushing for cellulosic ethanol are many of the same folks that abhor genetically modified organisms. But it takes genetically modified organisms to uh, convert that cellulose into the sugars for, for fermentation. So unintended consequences as in if it actually works, the environmentalists will oppose it? I've given up years ago trying to figure out what the environmentalists will support and what they'll oppose. I just I usually just put in the long term nothing in column A and everything in column B. Well, uh, that's that's uh, I think that statistically is a strong approach. Um, you mentioned the the oh with with the zero to here thing. There's one more thing I wanted to. Uh, to talk about a little bit. So it, it seems like we, we mentioned before what what are – there's a question of what is the legitimate role of government. And as I think I, I indicated before, my view is it's, it's to protect rights, which means it's to leave the, leave the companies free but prevent you – know, have some sort of standards or laws uh, preventing provable pollution. But that's, that's something that it seems like it's very important – that that be objective and clear and steady over time. And it seems like when you talk about something going from zero, hero to zero status, that indicates that the law is such that what is kosher or legal or not is continuously morphing according to the political flavor of the month, and that that is just going to necessarily 
lead to all sorts of uh, all sorts of destruction of different things and all sorts of things that are started and then stopped. Well, you're 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 absolutely correct, Alex. Uh, and I'll give you another example. Uh, a few years back, there was a requirement to uh, put into gasoline in California various oxygenates to help make the gasoline burn cleaner. And at the time, what was thought to be uh, the best alternative, the only alternative, was a, a compound called methyl tertiary butyl ether, uh, MTBE. So all the all the uh, gasoline companies had to start putting MTBE in their in their gasoline to reduce pollution. And then later we find out uh, that it leads to uh, groundwater pollution because of linky tanks and this and the other thing. Well, after the mandate, you know, companies spent billions of dollars changing their refineries and changing their mixing approach and all these other things. Come to find out, MTBE is now excluded. You can't use it. And uh, the same thing happened with uh, corn ethanol. When it was a hero, uh, companies spent literally billions of dollars building corn ethanol refineries. And then it, you know, then the the bottom sort of falls out when it becomes a zero. Well, over time, I've learned one thing that the that the government is good at, and they're good at building stranded assets. Because they'll mandate something, people react, and then it, then they they prohibit what they had previously mandated. So, a stranded asset is an asset that's no longer. Viable or valuable? Correct. And I mean, this is this is something that stranded asset in, in in a market economy. It's inevitable that you have stranded assets in the sense that people make mistakes or certain technologies get displaced. So when you have you know the horse and buggy gets replaced by the automobile, there are a bunch of buggies lying around that aren't nearly as useful uh, as they used to be. But this is this is cre- this is this is that kind of um, destruction, if you want to call it that, or Schubert called it creative destruction, but it's not creative. It's just it's completely just arbitrary rules. It's just destructive destruction. Well, yeah, and, and the distinction, I think, is that in a, in a market, things become stranded assets because something better has come along. The car came along and replaced buggies. Uh, something better has come along that the market desires. In the case of the government built stranded assets, it's because the government bureaucrats have have simply changed their mind. Yeah, and, and that the I mean that the original thing uh, more often than not is not was not valuable. So if it's if it's one of these economic justifications, it's someone arbitrarily thought that say electric cars would eventually be cheaper, and he decided to sort of expedite that by placing a mandate on that, and there was no evidence at all for that. Otherwise, someone in the market would have tried to make money doing it. So, you know, it might create a bunch of useless electric cars, but it, there was nothing there's nothing good there to start with. But also with these supposed pollution-fighting things, because the government, because it's, it's such non-objective law and because there's so much arbitrary and changing power, it can just be something like the government, you know, the, the flavor, the... Um, 
pollution so-called flavor of the the decade is global warming, and they can come up with this arbitrary 33% number, which I'd like to know where that number came from, and they can wreck a good portion of an economy and create all these you know giant monstrous turbines that are just economically destructive, and it's nothing like uh, the you know the buggy being valuable in its time. It's not like these turbines are valuable; they're they're less than than valuable. So I'm actually curious how did the how does something like the 33% number come out? Where did the, where did we get that number from? Well, it it came about basically because it's it's bigger than the 20%, which was the the level of the prior. <laughs> Um, one and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, the politicos and the bureaucrats feel like they need to do something, so rather than leaving it at 20, they decided to make it bigger. And what's bigger? Well, 33 percent is bigger, and it's bigger than anybody in any of the other states. So uh, we're going to be the leader. You know, we're going to be we're going to do more than anybody else. Um, that's fundamentally how it came to be. So, but part of, part of it must be, I mean, because they're not setting it at 100, part of it must be they have a sense that they can only get away with so much, and I imagine that's a combination of that, that manifests itself in the percentage can't be too high, or the, or the target date has to just be far enough in the future where they won't be around. Well, th- there's, there's certainly that from the uh, political standpoint. I mean, of all the elected members and the governor, how many of them are going to be around in 2020? I mean, they might be around, they might be in retirement, but they're not going to be around in office. So, you know, kick the can down the road, let somebody else deal with it. And and that's why you see things um, changing over time. As a, a new set of folks get in, they have their own uh, preferred technologies and preferred approach, and they'll undo stuff or change it in some other way. So, uh, the, you know, it's, it's kind of like, the old, the old joke about economists, give them a forecast or give them a date, but don't give them both at the same time. With, with I've never heard that one. Yeah, with a government program, uh, if, if you're going to be very aggressive, push it out far enough in time to where you're not here. Uh, I think that, that – so someone might say, well, what about – and, and I think the the global warming issue is the biggest issue because it's we're talking about the the, the biggest potential consequences. It, someone well, might well, counter. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. With respect to Assembly Bill Thirty Two, what what it what it requires is getting down to the same levels of uh, greenhouse gas emissions as we had in 1990. If we do that, and using the uh, IPCC, the International um, Climate Change Group, uh, if we use their own model and we actually reduce California's greenhouse gases by that amount, do you know what the difference in temperature will be? It will be less than one one-hundredth of a degree. That is far from catastrophic. That is far from cataclysmic. Um, in fact, I don't even know if we can even notice it. I, I'm quite certain that I can't. Uh, but that that, is, that that to me just shows that that someone might say, well, because people are always you, you'll have a certain 
I think Al Gore is a, is a revealing example in terms of how someone acts when they're in office and how they act when they're out of office. And we often say that people are corrupted by office, but there's a certain sense in which they're better in office. Like I think Al Gore was a better human being when he was vice president of the United States. And uh, I was reading a book recently, uh, Modern History of Oil, where he's actually championing the U.S. oil interests around the world because he he realizes on a practice, like he's not giving a speech or a PowerPoint presentation or making a movie. He realizes the whole fate of the country is in his hands. So he realized, wow, it might be important that Russia doesn't just steal all this oil and we should, we should do something uh, about that. So he's, and whereas he didn't do too much about the global warming issue, whereas now he goes out of office and he says that we should, you know, just basically ban carbon based electricity and, and try to ban as much as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. Things like, things like oil. But that, that gets to the idea that I'm, I'm, as far as something like people often ask, well, why don't politicians when they go out of office, why won't they do the right thing with global warming? We need politicians who, who have the political will. Well, it seems that because if making this very harmful uh, sacrifice and getting one one hundredth of degree, if that's what it means, AB32 means, what what some of these people advocate in terms of a carbon tax that would lower um, you know, CO2 emissions to, let's say, 20% of, of what they are now, it, that would be a complete and utter catastrophe. That's the reason why there aren't these wonderful idealistic politicians, because them being, quote, wonderful and idealistic would mean uh, basically massacring the country economically. Yeah, I'm well, curious what you think about that. Well, I, I, I think you're right. And, you know, talking about politicians, it, homogenizes that category of uh, human beings in a way that um, is not fair. I mean, there's some politicians who truly believe that the potential c- catastrophe of global warming is worse than the certain ca- uh, economic catastrophe driven by the policies. And there are others who uh, recognize a potential economic catastrophe and try in in whatever ways they do to to balance the uh, potential against the certain. But that goes back to the original uh, comment or one of the earlier comments I made that they're not learning. Don't take a deterministic approach. Take a probabilistic approach. And just as when you're driving from Irvine to Los Angeles, sometimes you run into roadblocks and detours. You can't follow your your roadmap exactly because things happen, and you learn things along the way. And you need to have a flexible approach uh, that accommodates new knowledge. The only organism that does that is the free market. That's interesting. You say that there are these politicians who there are some of whom, whom recognize the, uh, or, or who think that 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 greenhouse gases pose this this cataclysmic threat, and who also recognize the economic catastrophe. I very rarely see that. I, I see environmentalists, serious environmentalists, who embrace the idea of the population of the Earth um, being lowered by a factor of anywhere from five to twenty, but it, it's. Yeah, but it seems not, like you wouldn't get much. Tra- they're never the ones to volunteer. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's uh, as P.J. O'Rourke said, just enough of me, way too much of you. But it's, 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 it's I think, inherent in the system is, is that the, the politician who would say, look, I, I am willing to sacrifice the American economy and life as you know it and, you know, put you, I mean, to slightly exaggerate, put you in a mud hut because I think that otherwise the earth is going to turn into an oven and I have this comprehensive plan and maybe we even need to go to war with China to make them do the same thing. I mean, if, if they're really taking this seriously of reducing this and what that would mean in terms of actions, that, that person is not going to get uh, elected because it, it, it and it, it really starts to indicate, well, are we really sure it's this bad if we're willing to do that? Whereas the person who says, the Obama who says, yeah, look, we're going to have prosperity and green jobs and in fact, the economy is going to get much better and you know, it's going to be the climate will be cool as can be. That's that's the guy who, who's going to win. Well, you're absolutely correct, but I, I think there's a difference between what politicians say and what they think and do. And it's you know, there's there's a lot of talk about a lot of them, you know, as the candidate versus them as the the official. You know, those same individuals as the official often do different things than what they said they were going to do during the campaign. So they may yeah, in the I, campaign, they may in the campaigns uh, speak a lot about green jobs and we're going to cool the planet and all these you know nice sounding things, but then they take different actions when they're in office. But they have to be careful because you know re-election is only two years away or four years away or you know whatever it happens to be for their. For their office. Well, as a final question about all of this, and this is something you're indicating in what you just said, and that I really don't know that much about. I mean, what is your sense of of politicians who put forward these, what are in effect central planning schemes for alternative energy? I mean, to what extent do they really believe what they're saying? To what extent are they thoughtful? And, and I know, and and you can give me the the variability too. Well, I, I think there are. Uh, I think there's those that truly believe what they what they say, and there are others that say what they truly believe. Uh, they're not mutually exclusive, but I think, on average, politicians say what they believe the public wants to hear. We have. We don't have any. Uh, leaders right now in this country who say what they believe regardless of how it's perceived. And there's a difference between a, a leader and a statesman versus a politician. And that goes to the heart of our uh, dilemma. So one one more question relating back to just the economics of it. Of all of these alternative energy programs you've seen over the years, and we just touched on a couple, I'm sure you've, you've seen dozens, have any of them ever created anything superior to the market? Uh, yes and no. Um, and I'll give you the example of geothermal energy. Geothermal energy basically uses the, the hot rocks down underneath the earth uh, to produce electricity. 
and it was actually, uh, besides hydroelectric, was one of the first renewable energy sources um, available. And it was developed by the free market. And then years later, the government jumped on the bandwagon. It wasn't something the government started. Uh, and geothermal is, is different than, uh, say, wind and solar because it's available 24-7. It doesn't have the intermittency problem. I mean, it's got, it's got some other problems, but uh, technical issues. But it's, it's perhaps one of the most successful, from a technological and economic standpoint, of the renewable energy technologies. It was competing against fossil fuel-fired facilities back in the mid-60s in California. Wow. But it, it was not the result of a government program initially. And then later, government got involved to encourage it. And interestingly enough, after the government got involved uh, to encourage it, it sort of lost favorite, uh, favorite status amongst the market. I'm not sure there's cause and effect there, but um, the government just couldn't leave it alone. Geothermal is, is an interesting technology, and, and I, I, when we talk about the market, I, I should say that that there's not a free market in energy, and, and, and particularly you've got a government-owned electricity grid. So we're, we're talking about you know relatively free market uh, processes. So it's not as if everything the government touches is is just is led necessarily because the government is is touching everything. But there's a big, I mean, there's a fundamental difference between say oil, which is you know, which is really created by productive processes around the world that are not subsidized to a significant extent, and say, wind. How much? How much is wind subsidized now? Well, it depends on how you look at the numbers. But basically, if, if you look at the revenues um, that a wind farm developer gets, it's anywhere from well, around sixty percent of the revenues are from various government programs. So I mean that is, I mean that's basically being an economic welfare recipient, as far as I'm concerned. I think that's a fair characterization. And and even so, yeah, with just, those, uh, even if, even with that level of subsidy, they still need the the, the mandates, the renewable portfolio mandates. Yeah, that's. Well, let's 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 wrap up on that because I think that's really scary. I mean, because part of when we're talking about your history, um, you know, I had talked about this this privately. I I would I think of previous alternative energy mandates and and uh, subsidies as relatively small compared to what is in um, California law right now, and, and certainly compared to what is proposed in in uh, global pro, like the IPCC programs and. Um, global things with the U.S. I mean, Barack Obama is still committed to 80% reduction of CO2 by, by 2050. Of course, he's not going to be around to do it, but still, that's that's the direction we're encouraged to go. I mean, what is your optimism or pessimism about uh, the future? Because we're, we're talking about having radically inefficient technologies forced on us in ways that are, are really scary. Well, different days I can be optimistic that people are starting to see, uh, and other days I'm pessimistic uh, 
think so. Um, everybody uh, generally has a desire and a wish for the next big big thing, whether it be a you know iPhone five or or something else. You know, you you want that next big thing, and the next big thing uh, can actually be a two-edged sword. The next big thing might be another government program that reduces our productivity, uh, reduces our economic activity, puts more people in the employ of government rather than private sector, uh, and continues us, continues us down a death spiral. I'm look, you know, I, I would be happy if fusion technology came along and replaced fossil fuels. But it depends on how it's done and why it happens. Uh, and whether it's some guy in a garage in Palo Alto invents, you know, the next fusion technology, or whether it's some multi-trillion-dollar uh, tokamak uh, project that simply keeps some uh, government white coats in in uh, in employ. So I'm I'm generally optimistic that that the innovation capabilities of 37 million people in California or 350 million people in, in America can beat the, you know, 1 million um, folks in government employ. I figure 350 million minds are much better than 1 million. Well, they can certainly beat them in a fair fight, but the government does have the guns. Well, that's, that's true. But we have the innovation. We have the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, battered somewhat, but we have the entrepreneurial spirit that does not exist in the government. As well as we choose who's in the government. So I, I think um, I appreciate you you coming on the program because you know on this program one of the things we're doing is try to change people's ideas because if enough people have the right ideas about these things, then the politicians will not have the incentive to um, restrict creative individuals in the pursuit of energy. They'll have the incentive to liberate individuals. Just as a, as a last thing, where can listeners learn more about you? Um, they can learn more about me uh, on my Twitter account, Tanton Talkback, probably the um, easiest and quickest way, and you can also contact me via that Twitter account. So Tanton Talkback, that's T-A-N-T-O-N, and then I assume everyone can spell Talkback. Yes, and if, if they can't, I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Tom, and I'll uh, talk to you soon. Thank you, Alex. Okay, bye. Thanks again, Quentin, for sharing his wisdom and insight with us. Uh, my main takeaway from this interview is that it's really important to think about abstract claims and promises about energy in a concrete way. If you hear the government promise some magical energy benefit, you should really think about things like, how is it going to do that magical thing that it's promising? What tools does the government actually have at its disposal? Because the government's basic tool is really just the power to force it making its decisions. How have these so-called benefits panned out in the past? And I encourage doing the same thing in terms of, of understanding things concretely with the free market as well. Read about economics 
in um, in theory, but also economic history is super valuable uh, in energy. Learn, for example, about how the energy technologies we use today, the ones that allow us to have a standard of living that is unprecedented in history, such as coal, oil, natural gas, uh, nuclear, hydroelectric, learn how those emerged. And with that thought in mind, I'm going to wrap up the show by reading you an excerpt from an article of mine. So I guess I'm being a little immodest here, but I think it, I think it relates on the history of energy. It's called Energy at the Speed of Thought, the Original Alternative Energy Market, and I'll link to it in my newsletter um, and on my Facebook page. Uh, and when I say alternative energy here in the title, the original alternative energy market, I mean alternatives that are competing on the market, that are competing on the market rather than alternatives that are forced on the market, which the latter is much of what we're talking about today. So here's just one, one section, and it's about the unknown process of competition that occurred before oil became the dominant source of energy for illumination um, and you know, filling kerosene lamps, and which eventually led, was the first step to it becoming the, the leading source of energy for uh, portable energy. And I'm, I'm talking about the different, the different uh, precursors, which included things like camphene, which is a turpentine-based material, um, all the way through something called coal oil, um, which was a, a liquefied coal, which was considered the slam dunk to, uh, to be the leading illuminant until um, the innovators behind oil discovered that and how to harness it at a large scale. So anyway, here's, here's the beginning of the quote. The revolution in illumination was a process of thousands of entrepreneurs, scientists, inventors, and laborers using their best judgment to conceive and execute plans to make profits, that is, to create the most valuable illuminant at the lowest cost, with the best plans continually winning out and raising the bar. As a result, the state of the market as a whole reflected the best discoveries and creativity of thousands of minds, a hyper-intelligent integration of individual thinking that no single mind, no matter how brilliant, could have foreseen or directed. Who knew in 1820 that of all the substances surrounding man, coal, given its physical properties, natural quantities, and cost of extraction and production, would be the best source for inexpensive illumination? To that point, I should add in. Who knew all the thousands of minute efficiency of producing details that would be reflected in the operations of both the Samuel Downer Company, uh, of the Samuel Downer Company, operations developed both by the company and by decades of trial and error on the market? Consider then what it, have, what it would have meant for an Al Gore, Thomas Friedman, or Barack Obama to, quote, plan the illumination energy market. It would have meant pretending to know the best technologies and most efficient ways of harnessing them and imposing a, quote, plan. And given that neither Gore nor Friedman nor anyone else could possibly possess all the knowledge necessary to devise a workable plan, what would their plan consist of? It would consist of what all central planners' plans consist of, prohibition, wealth transfers, and dictates from ignorance. Depending on when the planners began their meddling and who was whispering in their ear, they might subsidize tallow candles or camphene, thereby pricing better alternatives out of the market or limiting waiting choices to explosive lamps, which is parenthetical. Explosions were a really big problem at the time. Thankfully, there was no such planner. There were only free individuals seeking profit and free individuals seeking the best products for their money. That freedom enabled the greatest eureka of them all from an unlikely source, end quote. And that source, of course, was oil. So for more on that, read the whole article. But the basic idea is that if we look at, if we really understand um, how the free market works versus how central planning, which is what alternative energy is, how that works, we see that there's just absolute, that there, there's just a life and death 
difference. And if we want energy progress in the future, we urgently need to liberate the energy markets, not add more uh, controls. And with that, it's time to wrap up the Power Hour. I hope you learned something, and if you did and think it's important information, please tell your friends and colleagues about it whatever way you can. Facebook, Twitter, email, phone calls, smoke signals, anything short of spin. As always, if you have any questions, comments, hate mail, or love mail, you can send it to alex at alexepstein.com. And to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my monthly newsletter with even more energy goodness, go to facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy. That is facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, which has all the links you need, as well as uh, new content posted almost every day. Next month, we'll be back with another exciting topic and guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein, and this has been Power Hour.